This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, September 27th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and as usual, we are here to help you take that next step in your journey to your own version of financial freedom, and that takes data, it takes perspective, and it takes a balanced approach to looking at opportunities. There's a lot of ways you can go and invest your money. And the majority of them are bad places. That's just how it is. If you look long term, there's a relatively small percentage of the stocks that drive the returns. And so you can easily get misguided, get caught up, and put too much money towards endeavors that just don't have a fruitful outcome for you. So that's why we're here to help you focus on the data at hand, the environment that we're operating in as opposed to the environment that you wish we were in. In today's polarized world, it's so easy to hate one side or the other and and imagine a world that you hope to see and invest accordingly. A lot of people do that. There's the ESG movement. There's the anti-ESG movement. And depending on which aisle, side of the aisle you sit on, you might invest in one or the other. And But both of those are misguided ways to invest because it's about a world you hope there will be. What we're focused on here is the world that is. So as always, I'm going to provide that data and some perspective of over 20 years of investment experience. Now we're going to talk about the market performance. We're going to run down some show topics, but right after our first caller question now. Hi, I love the show. I was calling about S&P Global, SPGI. Just wanted to know what you think of it. Uh, it's worth buying for the long term. Thank you. I'll be listening on the show. All right, looking at S&P Global, which is SPGI, and this is exactly what you think it is. It is the it is a data provider, and it's part of the rating agency that covers most equities and most bonds that are out there, and they make royalties from the S&P 500 index, right? If you are running an S&P 500 index and you're putting that name on your fund, think Vanguard, think the Spiders, et cetera, they're paying S&P Global. So clearly that's a, a good business, but it's also going to be up and down depending on the market environment. You could, you can see here is this is kind of a proxy for the S&P. 
because they are that's that's the majority of their revenue is the the royalties they receive and so this peaked back in late 2021 just like the S&P did it rallied this year just like the S&P did and it started starting to roll over just like the S&P has so i think that's the big question is you're you're kind of buying the S&P 500 because of kind of how this company runs its business an ebb and flow with the broader index, but also issuance of debt. So if asset prices in general are up, liquidity is abundant, more companies are issuing debt. And so there's more fees to be had by rating that debt. Now, it's a good business. Let me just pull up the earnings. So it's supposed to be $12.52 in earnings this year. Those estimates are being downgraded. And it is a consistent grower. But my issue here is the technicals. Now below the 200-day moving average. And revenue last quarter was 4% year-over-year. Earnings 11%. And it's at 31 multiple. So I think it's too expensive. Uh, so I'm passing on S&P Global at this time. Thanks for the call. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover in the next 45 minutes. Time permitting, we're going to touch on our main focus point, and that is HSA accounts, health savings accounts, and how they can improve your finances. So we're going to touch on the pros and cons there. Also, small caps are underperforming in mid caps. Why is that? Well, mainly because of debt and the rising cost of debt. So more broadly, in a, if you color the Russell 2000 with a broad brushstroke, there are some general similarities between these smaller cap names, and that is what's driving down uh, the, that index or those ind indices. So we're going to touch on that. Also, China has a huge real estate problem. By some measures, they have twice as many apartments or homes as they do people in their country. So think about that overcapacity within China. So how are they adjusting to a market environment? Right? They're trying to keep prices up, but at the same time, they don't want to keep inflating this housing bubble that's been going on for a long time. So we're going to touch on that. And then lastly, anti-ESG investing. As I said at the top of the show, People tend to be black and white. You hate ESG, you love ESG, one or the other. And with most things in life, there's a middle ground. So we're going to touch on that. Also, some voice bank questions. One is in regards to Maztec and the other, Alexandria Real Estate Equities. And I have an iTunes review question to get to as well. Now, let's talk about the market today. Very interesting day in the markets overall. You had a pretty red day early, and we reversed late in the day. I didn't see a major catalyst for the market rally late in the day, but 
it certainly did in a, in a big way. We closed up about 12 basis points on the large caps. Small caps were up 78 basis points. So that was interesting to see small caps outperform with prices for bonds declining with interest rates going up. And as we'll talk about later, typically higher interest rates are way more on those smaller cap names. But today, due to that reversal, you had small caps outperform. So it'll be interesting to see. We do have some Fed speakers tomorrow. Clearly, the 10-year has moved up in a significant way since the Fed meeting last week. Going from about four and a quarter all the way now at the close today, 4.62%, the highest level still since 2007. So this is a new environment, as we said, and volatility due to seasonality is to be expected. I will say that if we get some follow through to the upside, this may be the low for this pullback. Still TBD, but that was a relatively good sign. High volume, reversal day. Something to watch out for, but once again, you need that follow, sh follow through back to the upside. All right. Now, as we go to a break, let me remind you to check out our new Invest Talk Classroom series episode. It's for free over on our YouTube channel right now. It's titled How to Gauge the U.S. Economy. It is episode eight, and people tend to look at the headlines, they look at GDP numbers, inflation news, and they think they know what's happening in the economy. But in reality, to get a good gauge of where the state of the economy is... You have to look at other figures, not those figures. Those tend to be backwards looking. The GDP figures, the inflation data. So you want to be investing through the windshield, not the rear view mirror, as I always say. And so we touch on this video, the various indicators to watch that are leading and that you need to know what they are. So learn more about how to gauge the U.S. economy by searching for the InvestTalk Classroom over on YouTube. And now the phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter. I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here and, and sometimes... The way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things. The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday. Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that, hey, these are interesting. These have good businesses. And if they get to the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that. Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. The stock market is constantly changing. And serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on Invest Talk. 888 99 Chart. Justin and Steve. Hello, this is Andrew from Atlanta. 
I was trying to contact you guys about the following ticker symbol, A-R-E. I had an alert for this on my account, and it's underneath $100. And I'm just trying to see, is this a good time to consider getting into this? I would appreciate your analysis. Enjoy the show, and I hope you guys have a great day. Thank you. All right, this is Alexandria Real Estate Equities. ARE is the symbol, and it's an urban office REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust. And they mainly provide leasing space to life science companies. And they're in key locations like Boston, San Francisco, New York, San Diego, Seattle, Maryland, and research, the Research Triangle. And this is the problem, is most of their offices are in those big cities. Clearly, people are, are moving out of those. And they're tied to the life science industry. Go look at, for example, IBB. That's biotech. And that has been very weak all year. It's actually down on the year. While most sectors are up, this is down on the year. And this is kind of one of those sectors. I call these the original Ponzi stocks. There are a lot of Ponzi stocks over the past decade plus of companies that just ish, serially issued shares, sold the dream, burnt cash, et cetera. And a lot of those names have crashed big time. But biotechs have been around for decades and they have the same kind of business model. The vast majority of them never make money, but they all sell the dream of curing some sort of disease. And they utilize that dream to sell stock to shareholders. And when liquidity is abundant, when interest rates are low, they typically get that money for R&D to pay for offices and staff and the overall research. But in times like this where interest rates are higher, cost of capital is higher, they tend to struggle. And that's what you're... And you're, what you're seeing is seeing that feed into their landlord, which in many cases, Alexandria Real Estate Equities. Because it's a large firm, $17 billion market cap. And they have a lot of debt on their balance sheet. About $14 billion in net debt on a $17 billion market cap. That's a lot. And this is one of the flaws with REITs is that if you get out over your skis, it can be difficult without selling assets to repair your balance sheet. Now, what a typical company does is, hey, you get into problems, too much debt, you pay a dividend, you cut your dividend. And REITs can't really do that unless things get really, really bad. And by that time, the stock's really tanking. They can't do that because it's a pass-through entity. Net income, they have to pass through to shareholders. So they can only keep 90% of it. So they can only keep 10% to kind of repair their balance sheet or, once again, sell assets. So the moral of the story here is I would keep this on your watch list, but the liquidity situation has to come back in a big way and that's when you buy it until then i would keep it on the sidelines and you need a major reversal the technicals are just way too weak so i'm passing on it now we're going to a break i'm here ready for your finance and investment questions now so call invest talk at 888-99-CHART 
Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and unbiased guidance. You've come to the right place. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now, my focus point today looks in the story behind this headline, Three Ways a Health Savings Account Can Improve Your Finances. And HSAs are a very powerful tool for those that qualify. Now, the reason is because it's pretty much the truly tax-free way to, to save. Putting money into an HSA is a write-off just like it is with an IRA contribution. But with the difference here is that with a 401k or an IRA, when you take the money out, you're not taxed. You know, at some point, whether it's a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, you're taxed. The Roth, it's going in. With a traditional IRA, it's going out. With an HSA, you don't pay taxes going in, and if you, as long as you spend it on qualified healthcare expenses, you don't pay taxes on the withdrawal either. So it's truly tax-free, and it grows tax-free. You don't have to pay tax on a yearly basis. So they're very powerful. Now, there's also something called a FSA, a health, a health Flexible Savings Account. And those do have tax advantages, but they have one problem. There's use it or lose it. If you don't use that money on qualified health-related expensive health insurance plans, you lose it. With HSA, it can grow year after year. And it can almost be a de facto retirement account because you can take money out eventually, but you will take pay taxes on it if it's not with a unqualified medical expenses. Excuse me. Now you can invest the money depending on the HSA provider. Now, this is no endorsement or anything like that, but Lively seems to be the best one. It actually links up with Arcosodium, which is Schwab. So that's helpful. And, you know, there's no fees. You can have a debit card, so you can pay for medical expenses out of it easily. So those are the reasons why Lively tends to be a pretty good one. But HSAs are very good as long as you uh, have a high deductible medical plan. If you don't, then you don't qualify. So there are some rules around that. You have to make sure that you you do potentially qualify. Uh, so you can spend the money on a lot of different types of medical costs, acupuncture, doctor's visits, hearing aids, prescription drugs, psychological therapy long-term qualified long-term care services. So it can be kind of a de facto, maybe long-term care insurance savings plan as well. It's another way to look at it. You can also spend it on your spouse or dependents, even if they're not the holder of this account. Now there are contribution limits for a single person this year, $3,850. If you're over 55, you can add $1,000 to that. For a family, $7,750. That's this year. Next year, it's going up. Forty-one fifty individual, still the thousand dollar catch up for a family. Eighty-three hundred. Now, what are the drawbacks? If you take out the money before sixty-five, and you don't spend it on qualified medical expenses, then you pay taxes and a twenty percent penalty. Now, if it's after sixty-five, you don't pay 
that 20% penalty. But you do pay income tax, just like it would be an IRA. It's kind of treated like that from a tax perspective. And when you enroll for Medicare, you must stop contributing to your HSA as well. It's up to you to kind of keep track of the medical costs and decisions so that you, if you're audited, you can say that you spend it on the right things. So that's kind of how HSAs work. I, I think everybody should look into setting up a an HSA account along with their high deductible healthcare plan if they have one. All right, let's keep things moving and pivot back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank. This one came in earlier from the UK on 88899 chart. Hi, Steve, Justin, and Luke. It's Alex here from the UK. I was hoping to get your view on a company, MazTech MTZ. Um, they are in construction, particularly around renewable energy. They've really been beaten up, um, well, sort of since July this year. Um, I thought it was a good sector to be in with good prospects going forwards. They have um, missed earnings and revenue this year. However, they have an increasing backlog of work for 2024 onwards. And I was just wondering, with this weakness, is this a time to buy or is this something worth selling and moving on um, from? I look forward to your answer. All right, looking at Maztec, and you are correct. This is in the clean energy space, but that's not all they do. They are in the infrastructure construction business and is one of the largest ones, about a $5.7 billion market cap. So it's right in the mid cap space. And they have five segments, communications. So think of cell phone towers and laying communication lines, fiber optics, et cetera, clean energy and infrastructure, oil and gas, power delivery, and then kind of other. So a miscellaneous. And it has pulled back pretty dramatically. It's down from, let's look at the high here. High of about $120 per share. Now it's a 72 and change. And it is at pretty good support right here in the low 70s. So I'm going to give Maztec a thumbs up. I like the business. I like the cash flow. They have not, not really a ton of debt on their balance sheet. And... Yeah, I, I like the, the business. So I'm going to give Maztec a thumbs up. All right, now in the next Invest Talk, we look into the story behind buying a house or renting, which is the best option in 2023. We'll touch on that tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions now at 888 chart Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it. Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in, patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally. First with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. 
You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's talk about the rising cost of debt and which parts of the market are struggling the most. And if you look at the broad indices, you'll see that the small and mid-cap names are struggling the most. And that's because of the smaller companies, they tend to have more debt, less cash on their balance sheet, and a lot more of their debt tends to be floating rate. About 30% of the Russell 2000's debt stock is floating rate, which means they're exposed to the rising rate environment. It depends on when they reset and how you know what the price uh, or what the uh, the interest rate uh, caps are on that. So it dep- it, it, dif- it differs between companies, but. Of the S&P 500, only 6% of their debt stock is floating rate. Now, debt as a multiple of profits is higher for small caps, as well as interest payments that take take up a larger share of their earnings. So that means when the market sinks, because of higher rates, Russell 2000, the smaller names, tend to take on the chin. So far, since the peak in July, the Russell 2000 is down 11%. The S&P is down 7%. And this month alone, the Russell 2000 is down 7%. And so what you're seeing here is that more companies tend to rely on bank lending. That is that has become more restrictive. They also tend to have more competition, less pricing power, less economic moat, as we call it. And that means their margins are pressured due to those higher interest costs, as well as rising inflation, rising wages. Now, if you look at the Russell 2000, you have a higher concentration of banks and industrials, which tend to be weak when the economy is slowing. But then life sciences as well. We talked earlier about biotechs, and there's a lot more life science companies in the Russell 2000 than the larger caps, who tend to be unprofitable and more sensitive to higher rates and, and tighter liquidity. And then the large cap names, not only do they not have floating rate debt, but a lot of their debt is fixed and they push the maturities out pretty far because they could when rates were very, very low. So they're a lot like homeowners who have 3% mortgages. They have a lot of cash coming in and their debt service remains very low. And then that cash is now earning a lot more than it had been in the past. Now, the other side to this story is that Small cap valuations are very, very low. 
The price to book on the Russell 2000 has fallen 16% this year. So that means their book value is going up a lot more than the price of the stock is going up. As an end of July, it was only 1.8, which is very low by historical standards. But as long as the market prices in weaker economic data going forward, they're going to suffer. But if you get a reprieve from that, a clear indication that the Fed is truly pivoting, that it's not kill inflation at all costs, you're going to see a very large rally in the small caps due to those low valuations and the easing of the tighter liquidity conditions. All right, let's squeeze in another Invest Talk caller at 888 chart Hello, Steve or Justin. Today, my question is related to what specific metrics do you use to test how profitable a bank is and whether or not it has a good value? I don't have any exposure to banks, and I've been looking to pick up PNC Financial Group, ticker symbol PNC. If it falls below $120 a share, and Capital One Group, ticker symbol COF, in the low 90s range. They both appear to be undervalued based on their price of tangible book value, but I'd like to use more metrics to solidify my judgment. Thank you, and I'll be listening on the podcast. All right, you're looking at two companies that you you qualify them as banks, but Capital One and PNC are, are very different. PNC, it's it's large, forty eight billion dollar market cap, and it's a well diversified bank. There's retail banking, corporate institutional banking, asset management. They do residential mortgage banking as well. And clearly, they continue to struggle post-minor banking crisis, as I call it. March, there was a minor banking crisis. It wasn't major. It was a hiccup. The Fed kind of knows how to paper over these issues and keep them at bay for at least a while. And they have. But... As I've said many times before, it's pressuring their margins, the higher interest rate environment, the higher cost of near-term capital compared to the income stream they're getting from their longer-term assets. It means many of them are having trouble increasing their earnings. And if you look at PNC, earnings are supposed to fall 4% this year and 10% next year. So the trend is certainly in the wrong direction. And as I've said, in the financial sector, I don't love the banks. Much rather invest in insurance companies. So the technicals are poor on PNC. Yes, based price to book, price to tangible book, it's relatively cheap. But I don't trust a lot of, of, of that pricing uh, on those assets because they're private. A lot of the things they own are not public. They're not traded. Think if they own uh, debt on commercial real estate. What is the true value of that? There's no mark to market there. Okay. So I would pass on PNC. And then Capital One, it's a very different business. It's lending through credit cards typically. There's some automobile financing as well. And what you're seeing is auto delinquencies are rising dramatically. And if the jobs market does weaken into next year, which I do expect it to, delinquencies on their credit card business will struggle as well. So Capital One's technicals also aren't that great, especially over the past two months. They've certainly rolled over. 
They peaked around 118 in July. Now we're at $95 per share below all the major moving averages. So neither one of these are names that I would get too excited about. So I'm passing on both of them. Thanks for the call. Now we're moving through the final trading week of the third quarter. Can you believe that? The year is pretty much three quarters gone. And if you're kind of paying attention, you you continue to see energy prices go higher. You see that at the pump. You see an economic environment that while underneath the surface is struggling to a degree, depending on the sector you're talking about. And the reason we say that is because if you're interest rate sensitive, you're probably struggling. If you're not, if you're in the business of helping companies reshore manufacturing, for example, probably doing pretty well. And that's the new environment we are in. This is not 08. This is not 2012. This is not 2002. It's not 1998. All of those periods, you had modest inflation. You had exporting of manufacturing jobs. And now we've flipped. The trend is shifting. And that means different leaders within the market, different leaders in government, different leaders within sectors. And so the old playbook doesn't work anymore. It's about a new playbook for the future. The future of, frankly, I I think a more difficult environment, but a more hopeful one. A more equitable one, in my mind. You see that with the UAW workers. I think them getting better pay, it's more equitable. And you're seeing strikes all around the economy. And that is a trend that will likely continue. Due to demographics, due to geopolitical concerns, etc. So the question for you is, are you prepared? Is your portfolio aligned with these trends? Or is it stuck in the past? Well, if you need help, I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve Peasley and scheduling a free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go-to meeting. Just head over to investtalk.com or call our office at 800-557-5461. The sooner you reach out, the sooner we can help you and get your portfolio optimized. All right, now, we have surpassed 56 million downloads thanks to you, our loyal listeners, and more answers to your questions coming up next. So hang on. The Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes. I have a question for you about Amazon. So your questions keep coming. Question about P.E. ratios. And that's okay because Steve Peasley and Justin Klein specialize in unbiased guidance. If I'm looking at a dividend company, I'm looking for consistency of earnings and dividends. Your standard daily chart typically goes back one year. Steve and Justin are fearless. So don't forget to call Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. 
Hi there. My name is Mike, and I have a question about investing in bonds right now. I have a, a mixed portfolio with about 30% in bonds. And my question is, how should I look at bonds right now with the sort of current interest rate and inflation environment? And what's the benefits versus cons of shifting more to equities given kind of the future potential upside? Thanks very much. Well, if you're looking at raw bonds versus equities, their bonds are certainly more attractive, at least in the near term. If you're talking about shorter term bonds, kind of within three to four years or, or shorter, I think those are more attractive than just the broad indices. And why do I say that? Just look at the environment now. You don't want long duration assets and long-term bonds are the simplest, clearest, long duration asset. And then on the equity side, there's a lot of pretty overvalued names, especially in the major indices. And a lot of them are long duration assets. Growth stocks are long duration assets. Because their cash flows are far away. That's what long that's that's a simple way to describe a long duration asset. Because a lot of names don't have a ton of earnings today compared to their market cap and their valuation. But the expectation is that in the future there will be huge earnings. They'll grow into that valuation. So that's why they're called long duration assets. Now, how to think about the type of bonds to buy? Once again, shorter term. I would say between six months and four years. That's where you probably want to be. Why? Because there's probably a rate cutting cycle somewhere in there. And so you want to be able to maybe lock in a little higher rates right now. But you don't want to be locked in so long that if you do get a reacceleration two, three, four years from now, that you're not able to capture those higher rates. Because I, I do think in the next 10, 15 years, five and a half on the 10 year will look actually relatively low could easily see us back into the high single digits on the 10-year. Would not shock me. So that's the way I would think about it. There are certainly sectors within the equity markets that are very attractive. That would be short-duration assets, companies that have strong cash flows today, strong earnings today. And so... Those are the sectors specifically that I would target. I think energy, for example, all those energy companies are trading at three, four times cash flows, free cash flows. And what are they doing with that? They're buying back stock. Most of them are have very little debt or debt free. So hopefully that kind of sums up, uh, that answer. All right. Let's touch a bit on China.
And there is, I think we've known for many years. I remember 60 Minutes. I remember watching this uh, over 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it was talking about the ghost cities in China. And everybody's been prognosticating that there would be some sort of real estate crash in China. The problem is, is that China controls their economy. And they actually put price floors on what people and developers can sell their homes at. To prevent an 08-style bust. But what you're starting to see in China, and we're going to talk about this after the break, is a change in that sentiment. And the big question is, where is that eventual floor? And what you're seeing, that the, the problems in China right now are, there, there's always a... a, a, a I'm sorry, say a safety valve. There's, there's a valve that the pressure goes to when they when when you try to put in price controls and in china right now it's those developers they're getting ready to crater and in default you see that with evergrande and, and the others so after the break we're going to talk about the ramifications of them lifting these price floors all right this is invest talk we're heading to our final break so get your questions in now at 888.99 chart rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Now, before the break, I talked a bit about how China has staved off a a crash in the real estate market by imposing price controls. And if you look at history of price controls, you know they don't work very well. There's always some release release valve that creates other problems. And what's happening in China right now is that they're trying to deal with that release valve, and that is the developers. They're struggling because higher interest rates, weaker economy means less people are buying. And they're stuck with a lot more homes. And that means they their revenue is going down and they need to support their debt. But under new rules that looks to be applied to about a dozen cities, local governments are looking to offer or allow these, these developers to offer 10 to 15% discounts on unsold properties. And there's even articles in state media that are arguing to scrap these price controls. And these developers have a lot of debt. Now the argument would be, well then the housing market will recover because then these developers can get back on their feet, maybe build more. But that's, I don't think a a very good argument. Now about 96% of urban households in China owned an apartment as of 2019. And for most of them, it's their largest financial asset. But currently, the average new home price in 100 major Chinese cities dipped 0.2% from a year earlier and flat 
over the last two years, while existing home prices fell 2.4% over the past year. So with the price floors in many cities, there's still price declines. And private data shows home sales among the developers are down 34% year over year. And as I said at the top of the show, that there's a lot of data that says there's about twice as many homes in China than there are people. And therefore, the current price of these homes is way, way too high by probably a factor of two. Now, if you look at mortgage data, you will see that it's a bit different in China because they put a lot down on their homes compared to what we put down here. But if there is momentum and more and more people sit on the fence and prices fall too dramatically, that could potentially trigger fire sales. That would be the worst case scenario. Now, if property values drop 30% in China, about 12% of the country's $5.3 trillion mortgage book would be underwater. Meaning negative equity. And potentially triggering the jingle mail phenomenon we, found, we saw in 08. If prices drop 50%, 51% of mortgages would be underwater. So... Once again, much better footing from that perspective, but I don't, I don't think this is anywhere close to being over because of those price controls. As they mess with the price controls, and I think that's what they're going to try to do. They're trying to manage this decline, as they always do. It's, it's China. It's their. It's a managed economy, and so. I think this is a long-term trend within China and a microcosm of their economy as a whole. I don't think China is falling apart tomorrow. There's too many people. There's too much infrastructure. There's too much business still being done. But it's going to be a slow bleed from their manufacturing sector to the real estate sector. And the big question is, when does that ultimately bleed into government? And I think we probably see something like that over the next 10 years or so. All right. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Best Talk program. Steve Peasley, and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which, as always, you can find at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is the Best Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. 
a registered investment advisor firm, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.